Hey guys, Josh Bennett, lead pastor of Awaken Church here with week two of the Wordsmith podcast. And we're excited today. Got our full staff, worship pastor Matt Calhoun, your boy, Pastor Shane, the executive pastor here at Awaken Church, Word. and the youth director, Boy Hawk, Connor Hawk from Logansville, Georgia. Yeah, so we're excited. You know, uh, we're getting into my favorite time of the year. This week has been hot. I'm hoping it's kind of that last hot spell. You know, things start happening during the fall. For me, I love deer hunting and football. Those kind of things get going. Yeah, you definitely, during this time, you know, when you live in South Georgia, you know why they call it the dog days of summer. I uh, never knew that expression until I moved this far south, and it, it is really hot. I really like the wintertime. The colder, the better for me. I just like cold weather in general. I mean, the fall and the spring are okay, but, man, winter's where it's at. Fall time. I love wearing a sweatshirt. If I could wear a sweatshirt every single day, I would. So the colder, the better. Yeah, my favorite season is definitely fall, winter time. I mean, growing up in Colquitt, we didn't really have winter, truth be told. I'm sure it was the same way largely in Homerville, and Columbus surely wasn't too different. It never really became, you had winter maybe for two weeks there in February or something. So it's more like a really extended fall, but fall has always been my favorite time of year. You get to this time of the year and you're just ready for a reprieve. And I know especially when we lived in Arizona, one year we had 100 straight days over 100. And so you were just dying for a day where you didn't have to wear shorts yeah, that's and a t-shirt. Yeah, you know, that's ideally, brutal. me, it's perfect when I can wear shorts and a hoodie. Like that is just perfect sure. weather for me. I'm just kind of in between. It's cool, not cold, obviously not hot. But. So, Connor, what was the weather like? You took a long trip this summer. Was your weather good Like while you were out there? Was it yeah, seasonable? Yeah, so when we were in Kansas, it was still hot like it was back home. But as soon as we like got in Montana, like the low at night was like 48 degrees. And uh, when we got to Glacier, there was still snow on the ground. Oh, really? Yeah, and so the altitude was just changing, and so it just got colder and colder as we went. Yeah. Wow. That's my sweet spot right there. Yeah, the colder the better. I can't think of cold weather without thinking about Pastor Shane huddling behind the bathrooms in the Grand Canyon as we watch the snow set. Look, nobody ever expects when you go. When I see pictures growing up of the Grand Canyon, it looked to be ninety degrees. When I get there, it's snowing and it's nineteen to twenty degrees. I was not dressed for that, and so I had a pullover, and I was chilled to the bone. I mean, none of us were dressed for that. Technically, yeah, you probably were the worst off of the three of us, and Josh was probably the best off of the three of us. First time at Grand Canyon, it was snowing. Very strange. This week, we're diving into the actual text of the book of Philippians. Last week, we looked at all the intro. Really excited today to be able to dive into this. But before we do that, Pastor Matt, could you read the verses that we're really going to be looking at today? Yes, sir. Starting in verse 3. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One of the things that came up last week uh, quite a bit was that Paul had a deep affection 
for the Philippians. And I really feel like in these first um, verses 3 through 11, you really begin to get a grasp of how Paul really felt about the Philippians. Yeah, it's funny. If you've grown up in church for a long time, you've heard jokes about how sometimes worship songs are just not so much songs about Jesus, but songs about girlfriends or whatever. You can't really tell the difference. I thought about that as I read verse 3. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. It does kind of sound like a mushy, lovey thing. Obviously, he didn't mean it that way, but that's the sort of love and care that Paul had for the Philippian church. What did he mean? You know, you can get into parsing the language quite a bit, but what do you think Paul meant there when he said, give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you? Well, I think it meant just kind of how it sounded. He had fond memories. I think it goes deeper than that, and I think we'll get into that. But really, he had three statements in, in these opening verses that I think really encapsulates his affection for the ch- this church and the people in this church. He says, you're on my mind, you're in my heart, and you're in my prayers. I think that really takes a whole person. I mean, he, he's saying, look, everything, like I'm, I'm really appreciative of you and everything you've done and, and your friendship. Paul was in prison. He had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to pray, a lot of time to meditate. And when he says every remembrance of you, it's probably pretty frequently that he thought about the church at Philippi, especially because they seem to be some of his favorite people. When we think about this, his deep care, and you know, even some stronger language a little later in the verse that we'll look at, what was his response to that deep care? You know, what did that care drive him to? I believe it drove him to a thankful heart. I mean, at the very least, I mean, you can... You can hear that all throughout the letter is how thankful he was. And his response to that was to pray for them. You know, when he was thinking about them, he says, I give thanks to God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you. And so this care and this deep love that Paul had really drove him into a spirit of prayer for the Philippians. And, you know, you get the feeling here and the understanding that Paul prayed regularly for the Philippians and so this, this is something that just kind of came across my mind this week. If we believe in prayer, like we really believe in prayer, can we really care about someone and not pray for them? Because my thought on that is if I do really care about them and I do really believe in prayer, then I will pray for them. So if I'm not praying for them, either my care is weak or my belief in prayer is weak. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it, it's it's a weird thing. I mean... I have people that I I believe I care about, although I don't know how often I mention them in prayer. I mean, it's certainly if they ask me to pray for them or they say they have a, a prayer request, whatever it may be, I will certainly put them on, on my list and I'll pray for them. So I think it's possible that you could, you could care for someone and not mention them often in prayer, but I, I believe that you know, when there is a need, you are going to pray for them or even pray for them in general. I mean, because Someone could not mention you by name, but by association, they're actually like if you prayed for missionaries with a church planning organization or something, you know, by association, you would be praying for those individuals, though you may not necessarily mention them by name. But but I would agree that if you do care, then you're you're going to pray. It was a convicting thought for me because I, I really wrestled with that. I'm like, well, if I do believe that, and I do really care about somebody, then why don't I pray for them more? And it was a conviction of, you know, maybe I need to have a deeper conviction about prayer. Yeah. And so it's just kind of something that kind of stung at me um, a little bit. And, you know, I have known people that that deeply cared and, and prayed deeply 
In fact, when we first started working for church planning organization, uh, we went to a boot camp and the director walked into the room and there was six guys there and each family had anywhere from, I didn't have any kids at the time and the one that had the most had five kids. And he went around the room praying and he prayed for every person in that room, every husband, every wife, and every kid by name. No list, no papers, no cards to help him remember. And I remember walking away going, he prays for us every day by name because there's no way he knew everybody's family's name without praying for us right, and, and yeah. being deeply invested with us. I think something that's kind of remarkable about Paul uh, mentioning that he's praying for them, and I think it kind of shows you how deep his uh, love for them is, is he's not praying to be let out of prison. Like, I, I wish I could get out of prison. I wish the Lord would let me out of prison so that I could see you or something along those lines. I mean, he's he's in prison, and yet he's still praying for their needs and how fond he is of them. He's not even mentioning, which I don't, I don't know that I would do that. I would think, okay, my immediate need is to get out of prison. And I could justify it saying, well, you know, I could preach to more people or I could witness to more people or whatever the case may be. But that wasn't Paul. Paul knew that when, when God deemed it necessary, he would get him out of prison. And so he didn't, you know, pray for his immediate needs. He prayed for others. And I think that's pretty remarkable. I think that shows you how deep his, his care and his love was for this church and the people in this church. And how great of a perspective he had. Yeah. One of the things that fuels this is that he prayed with joy. You know, we talked about his circumstance last week. It's difficult. Um, he's in prison. He's suffering for the gospel. Yet here's this spirit of prayer. And I believe, honestly, as he's talking about this, that when he thinks about the Philippians, it helps bring joy to his life. And it helps bring joy to his prayers because he's so encouraged about how the Philippians have responded to his imprisonment. They've responded to his ministry. They bring joy to him. One thing we see a lot in these verses is always every, all, these words that kind of bring togetherness. And uh, one of the thoughts that I ran across this week was that maybe Paul subtly, as he's bringing these words out, is reminding them that there needs to be a sense of unity because he will get deeper into that conversation. And uh, there was a little disunity going on at the church. And so I think even subtly, Paul's trying to remind them that, hey, we're all in this together. As I was reading this this week and, and really started diving into it, it drove me to one of our core values here at Awaken Church, uh, which is we believe everyone's called to be on mission. And, and so basically what that means is we believe everyone has a part in in the kingdom of God. Everybody has a part in the work for the gospel. And so that can look differently. Sure. Uh, sometimes, especially those of us who grew up in church, when we hear mission, we think missions, plural, right? And the S there adds on to like planning churches uh, internationally is what people typically mean when they say missions. However, our core value is that every believer needs to be on mission. And mission includes not only our missionaries, but it includes our mothers and our fathers. It includes people who flip burgers during the week, uh, lawyers, teachers, whatever you do, regardless of where you're at in your whatever stage of life you're in, regardless of what you find yourself doing to make a job or a career, or maybe you're retired, Every Christian, regardless of where they're at age-wise or life-wise, has a calling to be serving the kingdom of Christ, to be working and be active and involved, serving a local church and serving the church as a whole out into the world. And also spreading the gospel. I mean, that's our mission too, is uh, 
every single day to spread the gospel and through everything we do. Absolutely, through both word and deed. Whenever Paul is talking about what he's thankful for and how he remembers them, you know, you think of people in our own church here, they may say something that's just kind of kind or they may do something that's just kind of above and beyond. You're thankful for it in the moment, but then I don't know how you guys are, but like it could be a week or a month later, I'll remember what that person said or did that was just so great and it made an impression on me. And then I'll remember that. And I think maybe that some of that is what Paul is going through here. He's like, man, I remember when they said this, or I remember when they did that. And so they were his partners in the gospel in that aspect. I can't help not think about community. I came from a church plant back home, Church of the Grove, and the community there is just different. You know, it's much closer than a bigger church, like a a First Baptist church, you know, where you have like 500 people in the um, sanctuary, and then you go down to about 100 people in the sanctuary. So the community is much closer, and you have more of a intimacy with the people in your church. So I I can't help not think about that when I read uh, Philippians. I think one of the things that's missed so often is when people are doing what they would consider menial task at the church, but really have a part in the gospel. And that's one of the things we really try to emphasize here. And one of the ways that we do that is through storytelling, because when you hear people's stories, you begin to realize that little things make a big difference. And when we were in Arizona, we had a young couple came to our church one Sunday and they were in their late twenties. And we had a guy out front that just to be honest, he was a guy that talked too much. And we thought, what better place to put him than out front? And we kind of told him, hey, Keith, you're the quarterback. Your job's to catch everybody that comes, say hey to them, and pass them off to somebody else. So he caught this young couple and passed them off to Edie. And um, Edie's just a very hospitable lady in our church. And she's one of those ladies that if you stop by our house, she's going to make you a meal, no matter how long you meant to stop for. And, And so we kind of had her in a role of meeting new people and Um, helping show them around the church. And she asked them if they had any kids. And they mentioned they had a kid that wasn't there today. So she took them into our children's ministry and um, showed them around, introduced them to me, and then went and helped them find a seat. And then during the service, I kind of noticed that they were a new family. And I walked outside after service and I could see them walking to their car. And so I really wanted to catch them. So I kind of ran out into the parking lot And the wife had already gotten, or the husband had already gotten into the truck, and the wife was just starting to get into the driver's seat. And they both came out, and they just started weeping. And um, they told me that they had just found out that he had stage 4 colon cancer and uh, did not have very long to live, that they had just moved to Tucson to be closer to her family because they knew where things were going, and that they had never felt so welcomed at a church. And they came back a couple weeks later, and uh, they felt safe enough to bring their kid in and um, took him into to one of our children's ministry. And those, so those children volunteers were having an important part of this story as well. And uh, two weeks later, he gave his life to Christ. And um, two Sundays after that, I preached his funeral. And I think about that story because everybody along the way, you know, everybody from Keith out front to Edie showing them around to Tracy making them a cup of coffee to Joel watching their kids had an impact in this family's journey that led him to the cross. And, um, and then not to mention the people that I saw kind of wrap around his wife in the next two years, just trying to help her navigate life with a two-year-old um, with a husband that was dead. And so it was just a reminder to me that every little role, every little thing that we do at the church makes an important 
impact on the kingdom and on the gospel. Paul goes on to talk about a great deal of confidence that he has. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who has started a good work in you will carry it on to completion into the day of Christ. And sometimes that I'm reading scripture, there's a verse that kind of makes me stop and go, wait, hold on. What exactly is he saying here? You know, and it, it may not be that hard for some of you guys to understand, and it's, but it's one of those that kind of makes me pause. So what, what do you think when you hear that statement from Paul? I think of throughout the Bible, and I, I think to myself, like, where is there instance where God has not completed his work? Where is that? Because there is none. And Paul believed God would complete his work at Philippi, and, like, it would, like he would finish. So I just think of that, like, where is there instance where God hasn't completed his work? That's where I go to first. Yeah, some people will look at this verse and they'll try to make it say more or less than probably what's there. Take this verse and make it a really big argument. And some, we have some brothers and sisters in ministry who do that. But I think it's important to remember how personal Paul is being in this letter. So when he says that in verse 6, again, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I think it's important to remember he's giving them a word of encouragement. Where they're at right now, both Paul and the Philippian church are experiencing a great deal of persecution. They are being hurt. They are being uh, marginalized. Uh, they're probably dealing with just the concerns of living in a world that is hostile towards them. And they need to be reminded, as we all need to be reminded from time to time, that God finishes what he starts. We have been singing a, a song here called Steadfast. It's all about the steadfastness of the Lord, that he is sure to continue to working and to continue to bring his purposes unto bearance in our lives and in the world around us. And I think that's really the heart of what Paul was trying to say here, is that you guys continue, persevere, keep doing what you're doing. The Lord is not done with you. He is still working in you. He is still bringing about his good purposes for you. Quite literally, the phrasing is, having been persuaded. And so Paul, based on what he knew about the Philippians and what he knew about God, was persuaded and convinced and confident that God was going to continue to work in their lives and that he had, ultimately, his confidence was in God and applies to everything that God does. But he also, and we'll get into later in the book, tells them to keep pressing forward. Yes. You know, he doesn't just use this as, I'm so confident that you need to just forget about it. Mm -hmm. It was, I'm confident of this, but let me continue to encourage you, press on. There's still more work to be done. Don't fall away. Don't fall back. Yeah, because I think you could, whenever you read that, you say, well, if God's going to finish this work, then I can just sit back and don't have to do anything about it. But that's definitely not what Paul meant whenever he said, and of course, if you take the whole letter if you read it holistically, you're going to find out, like like you said, that, you know, he's saying, look, you got a part in this too. You know, you got to press on. you got to persevere. But God will use that, and um, he'll bless your efforts. Absolutely. Well, it's a great time for a break, and so we're going to take a couple-minute break here, and then we'll be back in just a second. cultural deep dive and a cultural deep dive is a segment each week 
where we take an element of the text and we dive deeper in and try to look outside of the actual letter and see what we know about this topic or this situation. And this week, we're going to dive deep into the partnership between Paul and the Philippians. It's something Paul mentions heavily in these first few verses, so we thought it was worth taking a deeper look at. Paul and his partnerships with the Philippians and the other churches was what enabled him to continue his missionary journeys, continue to reach new areas and start new churches, and also minister to churches that he and other disciples had already planted. Now these commitments, these partnerships, were whole body. They were not simply just in word. For example, the Philippians and the other churches would give of various things. They would first and foremost pray for Paul. As we've kind of already hinted at earlier in the podcast, prayer was a commitment for the early church. Prayer was not just simply something to go through. It wasn't just a, or a hoop to jump through. It was something they committed their very lives to. The churches would often meet every morning, not just simply on Sundays. They would meet every morning to spend time in prayer about the various issues that they were dealing with and that our sister churches were dealing with. Money is never a fun thing to talk about, but uh, these missionary journeys were costly. And Paul worked and was able to provide some degree for his missionary journeys. But he was also dependent on the churches. And the Philippians, as we'll hear about later, the Philippians were very generous in their giving. Also, this involved gifts, uh, physical things, maybe food or something along those lines. The churches would give to Paul so they could continue his journey. Maybe it was something he could sell, or maybe it was actually food that he needed to consume. Uh, And what's important about these uh, partnerships, and what can easily be lost, is that it was not simply just to help Paul out. But Paul, in these partnerships, he understood that they were working alongside him. Earlier in the week, I was reading some sermons and some lectures from a guy named John Chrysostom. That's a weird name. It literally means golden mouth in Latin. So what they're saying when they called him John Chrysostom, that was a nice way of saying he talked real purdy. He was a good preacher. He was a good teacher. He's lecturing on Philippians, and he points out this simple fact, that when a runner runs the race, they're running for the crown, but the crown is not simply just for the runner. The trainer and the attendant of the runner also gets his share in the spoils, gets to share in that crown, gets to share in the work. It's sort of like this. Uh, The LSU Tigers this past year won the national championship in college football. And if you go and you watch uh, the celebration after they won the game, you see Joe Burrow, the star quarterback. You see Coach O there on the podium. You see all the various players. Go Tigers. Go Tigers, as Coach O would say. But it's not simply the players on the stage and not simply the players who are celebrating. It's the trainers, the quality control assistants, and the other words we come up for coaches. It was basically what they are. Everyone gets to involve themselves. Everyone gets to celebrate. Everybody gets to enjoy what they together have achieved. And that's how Paul saw his partnerships with the churches. It wasn't simply this is something that Paul has done for the Lord. It is something that we have done for the Lord. We know quite a bit about this connection between Paul and the partnership of the gospel with the Philippians because of what Paul mentions in the letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And, you know, so much we, of this podcast, we've talked about how much Paul loved the Philippians. And here's this dear love letter almost from Paul to the church. The church at Corinthians was actually quite a different um, letter, First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. Um, I'm sure Paul loved the Corinthians, but almost must be like that one child that gives you the biggest headache or something. Like, yeah. I love you, but you're driving me crazy. And he really kind of felt that way in Corinthians. And in Second Corinthians, he almost like... 
baits the Corinthians in and it's like, you know what? You need to be better at partnering with the gospel like the Philippians are. Hmm. And he really kind of calls them out. But in the midst of this, he gives us some insight into this partnership that the Philippians had with them. And a lot of it, as you said, was financial. And, and it connected them with the work that God was doing. And Paul said, look, only the church at Macedonia, which we know um, from our discussion last week, is the church at Philippi. And he said, only the Macedonians partnered with me. And he mentioned several things about them. First thing is this. He said, they gave beyond their ability. In fact, he said they gave out of their extreme poverty. And um, so we know that they were a church that partnered sacrificially. It's not like, oh, man, I got a million dollars in the bank. Here goes a couple hundred bucks. Go have fun. It was they were sacrificing probably meals and any sort of luxury item to be a part of this work. They did it out of their own free will. Paul didn't compel them into it. He didn't, he didn't do this passive-aggressive guilting them into giving. It was something they wanted to do, and specifically, Paul said they wanted to do it because they desired to have an opportunity to be a part of the work. And that's what gospel partnership is. It's desiring to want to be a part of the work. And um, one quote that I ran this week by Dr. Robert Piccarelli said, By participating in the collection, the Macedonians saw themselves as being on common ground with those in need in Jerusalem. And it built this deep bond and connection between Paul, the Philippians, and the people that Paul was ministering to. Yeah, Paul actually has a lot of gospel-centered friendships, if you want to call them that. But I think we kind of use that term a lot of times too loosely. We look at Facebook friends. I mean, I, I think I might have 500 Facebook friends, but I mean, you figure there's probably a handful of them that if I saw them at Walmart, we're stopping and having a conversation. The rest of them is like, you know, if I see them, I'll say, hey, how's it going? And then kind of move on. But Paul, with his friendships in the Philippian church, I I think it's more. And if you go and read Romans, the 16th chapter, Paul starts talking about a lot of his friendships in that chapter in his letter to uh, the church in Rome. Uh, Probably the most notable in um, that chapter is Aquila and Priscilla, uh, which were probably some of Paul's best friends there. And and maybe some of the reason for that is because Aquila and Priscilla actually helped to train Paul early on in his ministry. They both had a hand in it. And so he, um, he was forever grateful for them. And so what I think I would liken Paul's friendship there and his care for those in the church in Philippi is more like two soldiers who have been to war together. Uh, I grew up in Columbus, which is a military town. And so there's a lot of soldiers everywhere. And I had several people in my family that went into the military. And there's this sort of camaraderie that they just can't explain, especially those who have actually been to war together. They can't express it with their children. They can't express it with their wives or or, or whatever it may be because they have this uh, this bond. They've actually put their life in somebody else's hand. And I, and I think Paul's partnership with the church in Philippi, the connection is sort of like that, that they've been in. Because uh, Paul even tells Timothy, you know, I've, you remember all the hardships and the tragedies that I've had to endure and the and the persecution you know he didn't go through all that by himself he he went through that with a lot of his friends with Luke and with Silas and even there with uh Timothy Aquila Priscilla all these gospel centered friendships and so they've been in prison together they've been beat up together they've been ran out of town together and all that hardship actually has 
proven to build a bond between them that is that is really really strong and and again you know some of it was because of those who sacrificially gave I think to his ministry because they weren't balling like you said I mean they were given when they didn't have it to give and I think that's a concept that's so foreign to us today we give out of abundance but I don't know many people who who had to make a decision between eating and and giving to the work of the gospel uh, most that we can do is and not or uh, but theirs was or there was a lot of that I think in their lives and in their conversations. So there you have it. The partnership between Paul and the Philippians created this deep connection, and it is kind of a channel or an aquifer that runs underneath this entire letter to the Philippians, that Paul is grateful for their partnership, that Paul encourages them to continue in that partnership and to continue to advance the gospel. So that's our cultural deep dive this week, and let it be an encouragement to you. Partner with your church and be a part of the gospel work that is going on. We're going to continue our dive into book of Philippians here. And in this verse, Paul begins to say, it is indeed right for me to think this way. And we just got through in our cultural deep dive, talking about this deep connection that Paul had. And now he's justifying this feelings that he has for the Philippians. And so, you know, what built this deep connection other than their partnership in the gospel between Paul and the Philippians? And one of the things that jumps out to me is Paul started this church. And so in a nature, all of us sitting at this table are church planners. We know what it's like to plant a church. We know what it's like to start a youth ministry. We know what it's like to, to get deeply invested in that. And it builds a deep connection between you and the people. And I think that's part of what started this um, with Paul and the Philippians that built this deep connection with them. They also suffered together. And that gets into a lot of what Pastor Shane talked about in our cultural deep dive. You know, as you go to war together, you suffer together, it builds a bond, it builds a connection and it helps show that in difficult times, you really know who your friends are. You know, there's nobody in this church that is going to bail on the gospel because if they were, they already would have. And um, maybe that perhaps is part of the confidence that Paul has that God is going to complete this work in and through them. I think part of the reason also that they had this deep connection is that Paul often puts before um, the believers in a lot of the letters this idea that we are united in Christ. In Christ, those two little words, is the most common description of the church that you find in the New Testament. In Christ, it's easy to gloss over because it's not very, uh, it's not a good imagery. It doesn't really jump out at you. But it's used somewhere around 180 odd times throughout the New Testament that we are in Christ together. And that is the ground, that is the foundation of our unity and our bondedness and our friendship even. When we get into chapter two, that really dives into the, the beginning of that verse, those verses that... He talks about how important it is, and even the end of chapter 1, the, the unity that the church has because of being in Christ. I, I think ultimately what Paul's getting at here is he's saying, look, I feel justified in the feelings I have for you because, one, this is how I truly feel about you. You're dear to me. You're dear to my heart. 
And two, you've proved yourself. You've proved to be a part of the work. You've proved to be faithful. You've proved to serve. You've proved to suffer. And so why Paul felt the need to say, I feel like I'm right for feeling this way, I don't know. But for whatever reason, I don't know if he felt like maybe somebody was going to question his motives or something. I don't know. But he definitely made the point to say, hey, I feel, he says, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you all have partnered with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And I love these next words because this to me sounds like something I would see somebody on the streets of Tifton, Georgia say. Verse 8, he said, For God is my witness, how deeply I miss you all. For is God, doesn't that just sound like a South Georgia phrase? Mm -hmm. As God is my witness, how deeply I miss you. And it just shows this deep love and connection that Paul has with these Philippians. You could translate that, I miss y'all. You could. (laughs) Y'all would be an appropriate translation. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know how much time has went by, maybe one of y'all can chime in on that, since he planted the church and when he's writing this letter back to the church. But there's at least some period of time that's, that's passed And I think even that adds to the storyline because it, without even saying anything, it it says that he had history with these people. You think about, you know, your deepest friendships. Your deepest friendships aren't a month old. You know, even if you like hit it off, man, we're like best friends, man. We've been best, you know, we, we hit it off really well and we've been great friends for six months. That's really not your deepest friendships. The one, at least for me, my deepest friendships are the ones I've had for years. And so I think in those years, there's a lot of ups. There's a lot of downs. I got in arguments with them. I reconciled with them, which is the same thing with Paul. You can read all throughout his letters. He had some pretty deep arguments, um, some um, shout matches even with some of uh, his closest friends. And then he had some of his best times and, and his most memorable times. So I think that even adds to his saying there in verse 8 is, man, we've got a lot of history together. And so I think that kind of adds to it. When you look at the King James Version or translation of this passage, it talks about this in the bowels of Jesus Christ, which is such an odd statement because we use we would use heart. You know, when we sure. say, man, I love you with all my heart, Culturally, for them, they would have said, I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> and that's uh, yeah, okay to laugh at because it's, it's strange, but you know, idioms are exactly that. Um, you know, just I a remember, cultural divide. Yeah. You know, I remember when we were going to Cuba, they, they were talking about idioms and trying not to use those and our messages and things. And Mr. Calloway, the guy that was leading our trip, he said, In Cuba, they say, It is raining large clay pots full of water. And of course, all of us laughed like, that's That's crazy. He's like, yeah, because raining cats and dogs makes a whole lot more sense. And it yeah, was that moment yeah, where you're yeah. like, oh, yeah. So, But really, the ultimate, whether you talk about heart or bowels, Paul is saying this deep love and affection I have for you. Like, I truly miss you. Man, I just, I, I love to see that connection in this passage because even if Paul gets later in the letter where he's delivering difficult truths or he's condemning the fact that they have disunity and they're fighting over small things, that's okay because they know that he loves them. And maybe that's even why Paul is laying this foundation. Like, listen, I love you. And um, even as a parent, sometimes I have to say to my children, you know that I love you, right? I'm, I'm doing this. I'm punishing you or disciplining you because I love you. 
And, you know, maybe even that's part of what's going on with the Apostle Paul. Verse 9, he begins to shift, and he starts talking about this prayer, and he specifically says the things that he prays for the Philippians. He said, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. Some translations say that your love may abound. And so the first thing that Paul is really trying to get across is he's praying that their love would keep growing. How does our love keep growing? Yeah. Is that like an organic thing? Is that something you have to work on? Is that something you could like intentionally do? Or is it just something that kind of happens through the history of your relationship? I don't know. Well, you know, Shane, think about this. So when you got married, you loved Jamie with all your heart. There's Mm -hmm. no more left. And then you had Grace. And then that love somehow grew. You didn't love Jamie less because now you had to take some of that love and give it to, to Grace. And then Eden comes on. I'm just thinking of this, too, for my family. It's like every time I added a child, when I added a spouse, I didn't stop loving other people less. It just grew and and it expounded and and abounded. He prays for their love to abound, and then he goes on and says, and that they would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Yeah, discernment is something we probably, we talk about it, but we probably don't use the word discernment very often. I have three things about discernment. Discernment, first, is not purely just a defensive posture. Sometimes when we talk about discernment, we're just trying to encourage people, don't do this. Think through this. Would this be wise or unwise? And we tend to think only in terms of negative. But even the passage there, he says, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior. And that really is the heart of discernment. It's not just about avoiding negative things or bad things or sinful things as much as we need to do that, but it's about approving things that are superior, things that are pure, things that are blameless. Uh, Next, discernment doesn't simplify things. It actually complicates them. Discernment doesn't deal primarily with what, what is right and what is wrong because Scripture makes those things clear. Discernment is what is wise versus what is unwise, and that's not so black and white. That sometimes we have to think through. Sometimes we have to spend time in prayer over that. Sometimes we have to talk to our pastors or our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to kind of figure that out, to better discern how to do that and how to work in those things. And then thirdly, discernment is first and foremost a working without, something that happens outside of us that follows a working within us, that which happens within us. Uh, in Romans 12.2, which is probably what most people think of when they think of discernment, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Discernment follows what has already happened within you. That is the renewing of your mind. You don't renew your own mind. Renewing of your mind is something that God is doing in you through his Holy Spirit. So that's the nature of discernment. It's something that you grow in over time. Yes, you put some effort into it. You have to. But it's also primarily this work of what is God is doing in you and through you and through your church and through your brothers and sisters in Christ. This was so important because remember one of the great concerns Paul had for the church was false teaching. And the only thing that can protect you against false teaching is discernment. The only way to develop discernment is to do exactly what he says preceding that, which is to grow in knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so as I was reading this, I was thinking about counterfeit money. You know, one of the things that they, they don't set somebody in a room if they're going to be a banker teller or whatever and say here i want you to spend three weeks studying a counterfeit bill instead they sit them in a room and say i want you to spend time 
learning what a real $100 bill looks like. Because the only way to spot a fake is to know what the real thing is. And the only way to be able to separate the good from the bad and to be able to discern what is good and what is pleasing and what is right is if we spend enough time learning from God's Word what is good and what is right. And discernment, it's a spiritual gift, though, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's one of the disciplines of the faith. I would say discipline because sometimes spiritual gifts, we think, well, some people have some and some don't. And some people may have a greater gift of discernment. Sure. But I think all Christians should have the discipline of discernment. And I have a legitimate question about this particular verse when it says to approve what is excellent or what is superior, do you think that's an objective thing or do you think it's more subjective about what is excellent? Because, I mean, different people have different thoughts about what's excellent or what's superior. What do you think he actually meant when he said that? I think it's largely subjective. There is some truth to what is best, but the fact of the matter is we are imperfect. We are stained by sin God is changing us. He's making us more like Christ. Eventually, we will be free of the, the presence of sin, and we will think and know as we should. But right now, that's not the case. So a lot of times, discernment is dealing in with some subjective things. It's not, again, like I said earlier, it's not simply a matter of black versus white. Everything isn't black versus white, what movies, TV shows you should watch, what podcasts you should listen to. Those things, uh, good Christians that are filled with the Holy Spirit are going to disagree on those sort of things. So uh, I think it's largely subjective. There is some truth, but we have to humbly approach things, recognizing that we're not always going to agree on these matters that aren't directly dealt with in Scripture. The answer to that is really tied up in what follows these verses. He's saying, so that you may approve the things are superior and may be pure and blameless. So he's saying, as you learn discernment, you're able to develop a life that becomes pure and blameless. And ultimately, that's so that you are a light on a hill, as Jesus said, that your light draw, your life draws people to Christ and not to repel them. And then ultimately, it's all tied up in verse 11, where he says that this righteousness, this fruit of righteousness that comes from discernment and Christ in your life, comes through to the glory of Jesus Christ and to the, I mean, to the glory and praise of God. Objective, subjective, probably different for every culture as far as what that looks like. But the goal is that our lives would bring glory and praise to Jesus Christ because of the discernment that we're practicing and the righteousness that comes to Christ. Probably getting ahead of ourselves there. but I was uh, really wanting to know what you know the Greek meaning of this word, discernment. And it is anakrino, and it's to distinguish, to separate out by diligent search. And it's related to wisdom, like we pointed out. If discernment's a subject matter you'd like to read up more about, there's a really good book called All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment by Hannah Anderson. Really would strongly recommend that very good book. So he wraps this up and says, May you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I think that's so important. To the glory and praise of God. What, what is this fruit of righteousness? I think for a lot of people, especially if you grew up in the church, the first thing you think of is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. And we're probably better at some of those than we are. I mean, we probably develop some of those fruits better or easier or uh, more clearly than we do others. Um, You know, there's patience and self-control probably ones I struggle with probably the most uh I think we struggle with all of them at different stages or different walks of our life 
what you're saying is we read through the fruits of the spirit. Some of them we say amen, and some we say ouch. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I think it's so important this connection that our righteousness, because we can we can lean heavily on works here and say, hey, it's mm-hmm. about discernment and doing good and doing right. But Paul reminds them our righteousness is through Jesus Christ. Like ultimately, every good thing that we do only matters if it's done through Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is as filthy rags without Jesus Christ. And the only way that our lives will ever glorify and bring praise to God is through Christ working in us and through us. All right, guys, what's your big takeaways from verses 3 through 11 here of Philippians? I will say, diving into it, that we got a lot more out of these few verses than I thought we would, so it makes me even more excited to go through the rest of the book. Yeah, I think mine is probably about Paul's, you know, his his friendships. When you're planning a church and you're not, like I'm not around family. I'm, I'm not far from family, but I'm not around family all the time. And so um, many times my friends in, in places that I minister are like family to me. And I, I think that's kind of what I take away from Paul's because like if if we've been through persecution together, we've been through hardship, we've got this history in our friendship, then when the time comes that, and we all need help to get back on track from time to time, one of those friends may say something that you don't want to hear, but you need to hear. You kind of go back to the source. You're like, look, I know this person has the best intentions for me. I know they're they're close to God. They're serving God. And what they're saying is right. It's just not what I want to hear right now. But ultimately, you know that that is a that is a friend that wants you closer to Christ and not further away. And so you can take that sort of criticism or that sort of argument or conversation. I think you can take it a lot better because because it is coming from those friends that help you walk the straight and narrow, so to speak. Dr. Piccarelli mentioned something that really speaks to every person, everybody sitting at this table and everybody that's listening as a huge takeaway from this these verses. He says, verses 3 through 8, perhaps more than anything else, testify to the relationship that ought to exist between a man of God, in this case Paul, and a group of people he partners and ministers with. Several things characterize that relationship. Gratitude, prayer, joy, a sense of partnership in the gospel, confidence in the work of God, deep affection, both pastors and their congregations ought to strive to have such relationships. And so I think that's a huge takeaway. You know, we're all pastors here sitting at the table. Most of the people listening to this are part of our church or part of a church. And these verses really speak to the sort of relationship that we should have with people in the church, that we should pray for them, we should have joy, we should be thankful for them, and that they should be a part of the ministry, and that these things work together, and that's what makes the church beautiful. Yeah, the boil it down to one small yet big and complicated word, it's it's love. Love between uh, Paul and the Philippians, and really love between all Christians and one another, and Christ himself. Love really kind of jumped out of me as we looked over these verses, and, and love is... Look, we live in a, a, a in cultures where we think of love primarily as romantic or sexual. But, I mean, love it has a friendship element to it. In fact, C.S. Lewis, if he was here, and he's not, but if he was here, he'd, he'd argue that friendship is the highest form of love. That we are friends of God, so to speak, and that is uh, reorients who we are and what we're trying to do. And I think we see here between the relationship between Paul and Philippians is that love on display. 
as he says repeatedly throughout the passage, that it's, it's love that's driving his writing uh, to the Philippians. It's love that's driving the Philippians' care and um, partnership with Paul. And it's love that's driving all of them to continue to work to see the kingdom of God bear on their lives and then on the lives of the people in the world around them. Absolutely. And one thing we would be remiss to, to not really draw out as a takeaway from this is the importance and the connection that takes place when the church partners with ministries outside of its doors. And I specifically think with our church plant here, the church we plant in Arizona, the hundreds of people around the country who give and support mm-hmm. to make this ministry possible are connected. According to these verses, they're deeply connected with the work God's doing here. I remember um, one year at our four, I think it was our fourth anniversary in Arizona. I mentioned, Hey, look, I just want to remind you that there are hundreds of people around them, this country that give money every month so that this church could be here. And after I walked out of the service, a lady named Tracy, who was deeply connected there and had gotten saved at our church, she grabbed me and with, literally with tears in her eyes said, the next time you see any of them say, thank you. And it was this, this emotional connection that Tracy had with these people she didn't even know because their investment had led her to eternal life. It's such an important thing, and it, we'd be remiss not to mention it. I think of Paul and his joy in the Philippian church, and I think of his confidence and the fact that he believed God would finish a great work in the church. And I think of church plants about how hard it is um, planning a church and how hard it is to to go in week in, week out of uh, just different obstacles. And I just love seeing the the confidence and just the joy, even through the trials. That's a wrap on week two of the Wordsmith podcast. I don't know about you guys, but I have enjoyed this so far, even that behind-the-scenes stuff, laughing and cutting up with each other, but just having the opportunity to dig into the Word and to pull things out. Yeah, Word. No matter where you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever, subscribe to the Wordsmith Podcast. We're going to be putting one of these out every week till we get through the book of Philippians, and we're excited to hear your feedback, and more importantly than anything else, it's our prayer that these discussions, this time in the Word, helps you grow in your relationship with Christ.